0: 1st Corinthians 16 I'm glad the vocabulary can bring you joy. 1st Corinthians 16 We're going to read through the whole chapter but we're going to focus particularly on verse 13. So 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse one. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches in of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intended, or intend rather, to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes to you, See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with, other brother, with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. And here's the verse that we'll be focusing on the most this morning. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Two verses actually. Let all that you outdo be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to, the, to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus, and Achaicus, Achaicus rather, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and, Pris- and Prisca, Yours might say Priscilla, perhaps. Together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If any has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 16. Here we are at the end. We've considered 15 chapters of writing to this troubled church in an even more troubled city. It is this greatly troubled city of Corinth that allows us to relate so well to these first century Christians. A coastal city plagued with pagan influence and immorality reminds us generally of our present society and specifically of our very own city of Gloucester. When we look at the world around us, it can get discouraging. It might even appear that the enemy is winning the war as we see the horror upon horror simply by flipping through channels on TV. And whether you can, whether that horror upon horror is the news, reality, or whether it's entertainment. Or as we stroll down the street right here, we see flyer after flyer advertising local occult activities. We can join with Paul in asking, as he did in Romans 7, when describing his past struggles with the flesh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, our only hope in this mysticism-saturated, me-centered, perverse culture we live in is the Lord and His glorious gospel that He's made available to us. And He is more than enough. He's our only hope, but it's the only hope that we need. It's the only hope that works. And it's a marvelous, precious, strong hope that we have in the Lord. Over the past five months, we've been learning from the Corinthians' mistakes. At least, that is our goal. We don't have to make all the mistakes to learn from them. Much of Paul's writing to the Corinthians has been corrective in nature. Yet through this, we see Paul's heart of a father and his heart of a shepherd. As a good father disciplines his children, so Paul is firm with the Corinthians. As he is more concerned about their holiness Than his likability. We'll we'll read through all of chapter 16 why we just did (laughs) today, but we'll be focusing on verse 13 and verse 14 and and how it relates to the overarching themes from Corinthians, some of the, the key points that Paul has emphasized throughout this letter, such as the need for love for one another, and unity in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Again, verses 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. That's a a term that's used sometimes in Scripture, kind of somewhat like like a military command. It's calling people to be people of strength and people of courage. Be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. We have, we have a challenging culture to live in, don't we? It's a challenging culture indeed. Yet I'm so thankful that I can say this for myself, but perhaps you can echo this as well. In many ways, I'm so thankful that we don't live in the Bible belt. Because while there will be more Christians around us, we have have a lot of opportunity here. They have opportunity there too. The Lord can work through them there too, of course. But we have a lot of opportunity here. And as people say, and as, as has been said before, and this is a good reminder for us wherever we are, whether we're at the workplace or whether we're in the community, wherever we are, as we see things getting very dark, light shines more brightly in the dark. And, the, and so is true for the light of the Christians in the city of Corinth. And so is true for the light beaming off of us as we abide in Christ and he shines through us. What opportunities we have in this, in, in this society of, of mysticism, of, of false religion, of perversion, of self-centeredness. It can leak in to the church. We're all fallible. We're all human. We're all imperfect. And if the society around us weren't enough... We, we come together as a body of Christ, just as the Church of Corinth did, and we come together to worship a perfect God, and we're imperfect people. Imperfect people. We're challenges. We're, we, can be, we can be challenges. Our own selves can be challenges. We all know that. And you don't have to ask my word for it, though. You can ask, as it were, by reading the book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Available at the Sawyer Free Library of Historic Gloucester, Massachusetts. I confess to you all that this book is overdue. Please forgive my poor example. But it's, I was going to say it's Sunday. It's not Sunday. We, we always have church on Saturday. But I was going to say I could have dropped it off. But it's for the sermon. Here's, here's what. Bonhoeffer, who was a, a, um, a pastor, uh, a theologian, a seminary professor, an underground seminary professor during the time of the Holocaust in Germany. And he wrote this book called Life Together. It's about Christian community. And he writes this to warn us against the, the so-called perfect idea of Christian community. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of emotions, but the God of the truth. Only that fellowship that faces such disillusionment, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. It's a book that needs to be slowly read and pondered and digested. But I think he makes a good point there. There are some people, and I wouldn't doubt that there were some who were very disillusioned in the Church of Corinth, looking at all the problems they had. The the Corinthian church was a very troubled church, as we've seen throughout these chapters. Maybe, maybe they didn't have such great disillusionment because they were a first century church, so they didn't have all these like ideas of what a church was supposed to be that we have now, maybe. Maybe it was a little bit. I don't know. But the fact is that people can bring this idea of what a perfect church is supposed to be. I have this idea. <sighs> no, I don't go to 27th Baptist Church of... And over anymore. Oh, no, I thought you liked it there. Oh, I did. But, you know, I really want to go to a church where people are loving. I really want to go to a church where fill in the blank. And the reality is we are imperfect people. We come together. And if we bring our, our perfect ideas of what church is supposed to be. Now, there's, there's a biblical idea. That's what we want to strive for. That's what we want to strive for. But we're very realistic if we realize there's a biblical idea and we're imperfect people and we're always on a journey through Christ and in Christ and with Christ in our midst, abiding in Christ personally and together as a church to become become more and more like Him as individuals. And so we become more and more like Him when we come together. But... It's not the idea of stepping into some place that's arrived, and many people step out of places because they haven't arrived yet. Uh, I think if somebody, if somebody, um, comes to the church to worship with us someday, and they have like sixteen horror stories of the other churches that didn't work out, and none of them have names like Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints or church of christian scientists or something like that they're all like christian churches and they're like 16 horror stories well they may maybe they'll they'll find christ more authentically here maybe they will or maybe maybe we just need to tell them up front we're not perfect either <laughs> or we could be silly and say oh well we're perfect here You won't have any of those problems. No, let's not do that. Let's not do that. We'll be honest with them. Yeah, we'll be honest with them. And uh, the fact is, we can learn a lot from the problems of the church of Corinth. We can learn a lot from their trouble. Many corrections Paul gave them. Let's, in light of Paul's admonition here, as he's closing, as he's giving his, his final words, to the Corinthians. Let's consider some of the major themes that he's brought up that can spur us on to unity in Christ and love for one another. Those are two of their greatest problems in the Church of Corinth. Disunity and and a a lack of love for one another. We'll revisit some of Paul's teachings. Let's start with celebrate unity in Christ not division over anything else. Celebrate unity in Christ rather than division over other things. For this, we're going, all, all of the scripture, as far as I know, all of the scripture is going to come from 1 Corinthians. We're going to hop around to some different verses as we, we're not going to look at every single one of Paul's teachings. I, don't, I, I think this would be a mega long sermon if that was the case. But we'll look at some highlights. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13, celebrate unity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13 reads, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Don't be divided over the non-essential issues. And don't be divided, Paul says, over, over different personalities and different preachers. Instead, find unity in Christ. Where is our identity as a church? Let it always be found in Christ. It's an interesting thing. We're just looking around where we all come from different walks of life, different, different jobs, different, even a little bit different locations, different pasts, some from a religious past, some not. But what has unified us? Christ. And we have great unity in Christ. Isn't, isn't it great that where somebody Somebody asked me, uh, what what is the age range in your church? About what what age? And it's, it's an interesting age range. Really, it's, it's we have a small group of people, but we have quite a variety of ages. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing indeed. And... What, where we see this unity in Christ is it doesn't stop when the sermon stops. It's, it goes on for sometimes hours as we drink coffee, eat snacks, eat lunch, and, and, and whatever else. And we have this wonderful unity that's in Christ. A wonderful unity in Christ. And, and what a wonderful unity it is. Let's always... Let our unity center around Christ and Christ crucified. The simplicity of the gospel. We can, find, we can have all kinds of programs and, and things going on in church that are exciting and maybe those things are good. Maybe the Lord will bring forth some of those things in certain time, but let Christ be the center. And for us personally, for, us, for Christ to be the center of us as a church, Christ must be the center for us individually. And that's always the question we have to ask ourselves. Where is my identity? Is it found most specifically in Christ? There are other ways we can find it. Some of the Corinthians found their identity in Paul, or Apollos, who had more of a charismatic speaking ability. He was more outgoing in public than Paul. Or Peter, known as Cephas, where do we find our identity? Sometimes we can find it in the basic things of life, like what we do for a job, or a hobby that we like, or ethnic background, or any of those things that are not bad things, but do we really find it in there? In heaven, none of those things are going to matter in eternity. It'll, it'll matter how we lived in those things, how we did our job. That's important, how we, how we interacted with one another, of course. we're not going to have those kind of identities. With our glorified bodies and new heaven and new earth, we're going to have identity in Christ. Let's let that be a center of our identity now. And religiously, so much to learn from over the internet. So many authors out there. uh, We're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We don't, we don't focus too much on that, but our identity is in Christ, individually and as a church. The world is looking for unity. The world tries to manufacture unity. Have you noticed that there's always this, there's always this thirst that's never satisfied, because it's not satisfied in Christ that the world's looking for? There's the spiritual unity, it's this whole idea that's so strong out there, it's so, it's so present out there. This spiritual unity idea that all is one, and that we are one with God, but it's not—it's not the idea that Christ is in us. It's not that—that's the truth, if we're in Christ. But it's this idea that God is this, God is that, God is me, God is you. Everything's God, and it's this whole one idea. It's this thirst for unity, and and then we and then and they want to see all of us together as one. They want to make every religion and every faith or lack thereof equal value, which we know doesn't even make any sense. But I think that's how desperate people are for unity. People don't want to say there are rights and wrongs. People don't want to say there's, there's a moral right and a wrong that you can define something as sinful. Oh, that's close-minded. That's intolerant. reality is. There there is one who is God and then there's another who is us. And and God had to step down, not becoming any less God, but in humility put on human flesh to become like us in his death and be resurrected. And that's the only thing that bridges the gap. And we have that unity in Christ. The, the, the world is thirsting for unity. Let's show them unity in Christ. Let's, let's be of one mind. Finding our personal identities in Christ, finding our identity as a church in Christ, let's be of one mind so that we're spurring one another on and when the world comes in and the world sees us, huh, that's interesting. There are people of all different ages, all different backgrounds, happily eating a pineapple together on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Why? Why are they here? What are they doing? What is, ah, it is Christ that has brought us together. I mean, why else? We all like pineapple, but would we just gather together to eat a pineapple in the afternoon? Probably not. That'd be strange. <laughs> it is Christ that has brought us together. Unity is not ours to create, but it is ours to keep. I was listening to A sermon, and the preacher said, unity isn't for us to to make. That's too hard for us. It's just ours to keep. God made the unity of us in Christ, but it's it's our responsibility to keep that unity going. And that's where Paul had to correct the Corinthians many times. Don't, Don't say, I am of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. Just be unified in Christ, and may we be the same. But again, You don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word also, first and foremost from the Lord of Scripture, but also from another fellow of old from the continent of Europe, this time from Charles Spurgeon. The other day, if you would open up your red hymn book to number 586, just kidding. This is not a hymn book, but a devotional. I'm not kidding about 586, though. I'm 100% serious about that. Spurgeon writes this little devotion. He often takes one little verse or even a portion of a verse, and he takes the words babes in Christ from 1 Corinthians 3.1. And here's a thought. As concerning unity in Christ, we're on different places of the journey. We're on different places of the journey. Some of us have been following Christ for many years, some of us for fewer years, but there's this great unity that's in Christ. And here's how he says it. Are you mourning, believer, because you are so weak in the divine life, because your faith is so little, your love so feeble? Cheer up, for you have cause for gratitude. Remember that in some things you are equal, to the greatest and most full-grown Christian. You are as much bought with the blood as he. You are as much an adopted child of God as any other believer. An infant is as truly a child of its parents as is the full-grown man. You are completely justified, for your justification is not a thing of degrees. Your little faith has made you clean every whit. You have as much right to the precious things of the covenant as the most advanced believers. For your right to covenant mercies lies not in your own growth, but in the covenant itself. And your faith in Jesus is not the measure, but the token of your inheritance in him. And he goes on. Think about that. The one who just came to Jesus by faith and has... The righteousness of Christ placed onto him has has just as much in Christ as the one who's been walking with Christ for years. I would trust that the one who's been walking with Christ for years hopefully has learned contentment and joy and and patience, the fruit of the Spirit, has developed those fruit of the Spirit through years of abiding in Christ. But the one who just came to Christ has all the treasure that's available in Christ. And that's some of that unity that we see. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing indeed, the unity available for us in Christ. So celebrate unity in Christ, not division over anything else. Here's another point. God defines marriage and sex and He sets the standards for these things. He defines them He sets the standards, and we continue to consider from verses 13 and 14 that Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, stand firm in the faith. We're really going against the tides of culture when we believe things like this. Here's, Here's how, and I don't think I'm leading you astray by saying this because we can figure out how to sin. Any Anyone who has kids, anyone who has kids probably can testify to the doctrine of original sin, because you know you didn't teach your kids how to sin. It's like, Jimmy, why don't you open up your mind more? I think you're four, you're old enough to understand this, that sharing with your sister is not all there is in life, I'd like to see you expand your boundaries more and creativity and strike her every now and then and take what belongs to her and claim it as your own. When I get involved and take it from you, I would like you to throw yourself on the ground as if having a seizure, screaming and crying, like a mad child that must be restrained. Please only do this once in a while. Know that if you carry this into adult life, though, I will probably be ashamed of you. That never happens. But here's how to justify a life of immorality. And here's how we have to cling to Paul's words here, where he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Basically, what we do as humans is we just listen to the words of the enemy. If you remember in Genesis, the, the enemy said, when tempting Adam and Eve with the fruit, he said, did God really say? The fact is, God did really say. But at, once we start opening that door, did God really say? And that's what even sometimes almost entire denominations do with scripture. Did God really say? They they face the challenge of this is really clashing with our society. <clears throat> what about the whole world of alternative lifestyles? It's there's so many letter abbreviations, I can't keep up with them. There will probably be some new ones by the time the sermon's done. Not just because it might be long. There's, there's this, whole, this whole idea of, of what, what is gender, what is marriage is constantly being redefined by society. Mm-hmm. But Paul says, stand firm in the faith. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. We'll stay, stand firm in the faith. Well, we shan't compromise as, let's not compromise as individuals, let's not compromise as a church. And we'll say, well, we never need to do anything that has to do with gaining more numbers or trying to be more acceptable in the public's eye by condoning these lifestyles. What what do we say to the unbeliever who comes in and, and those living those kind of lifestyles of immorality? We say, come to the cross. That's what we did. And we, too, although our sin might or might not have looked the same as yours, God forgave us. And that's the only way that we are who we are in Christ. And, and this, this righteousness that we have, it was just placed on us. All we have to do is ask for it. And that's what you can do too. But to the believer, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, to the one in Christ, we try, we try to reach out to them. And we show them their error. But when they refuse, if they're part of our fellowship and, and Refuse to turn from blatant immorality. That's where we have to say, it's time to separate. If 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 constant, if repeated correction and correction with one believer and then two believers and and then and leadership, if they reject that all and are living a gross life of immorality, that's where we have to separate. But we do that even out of love, in hopes that that as a final result. Will cause them to turn to Christ. This this lifestyle that Scripture, this lifestyle of gender and marriage and sexuality, is a str- it's it's getting to be a kind of strange lifestyle, <coughs> and that's okay. We're aliens. That's an advertisement for another book of the Bible, and uh, the letters of Peter. We're aliens. Where where our citizenship is in heaven. And we don't, we don't wave a flag of pride, saying that we, we are like this and you are not. But we do put a, a strong stake in the ground and we say, we, we hold to scripture. We don't, we don't accept those things and we don't refuse to talk about them and we don't, we don't shy away from them. Rather, we say, this is what marriage is. It's actually something that God made up. It's not a social institution. That's another way to go astray. Some believers even will try. Well, you know, in Genesis where it says Eve was Adam's wife, that's probably a poetic way of saying it. Marriage really started in like year 386 or something like that. I just made up that date. I don't know what they come up with. Whatever it is it's not true, so I can make it up. But the reality is... God made a wife for Adam. He was obviously therefore a husband of Eve. God defined marriage as that between a man and a woman to be united and for all the joys of marital intimacy to be shared and appreciated and enjoyed only within the confines of one marriage between a man and a woman for a lifetime. And here's the thing. There is great power in holding to the truth. It might not always come as a great advertisement, but at the end of the day, as long as we don't have a holier-than-thou attitude, if we have a humble and loving attitude toward those who don't know the Lord just as much as we do to one another, at the end of the day, no one can truthfully call us hypocrites. They might call us crazy, they might call us a peculiar people, but that's okay. They might even call us freaks. That's okay too. But at the end of the day, we will hold strong to what the Lord says. So in this, in chapter, we could look at several scriptures for this, but we're going to particularly look at just chapter 6, 16 to 20. Here Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So when Paul says at the end of, in his final words to the Corinthians, stand firm in the faith, that's what we will do. Let us all do that personally and as a body of Christ, standing firm in the faith in a a world. Of, of perversion through media. Cable TV is getting scarier by the day, let alone what else is out there. But, but we will stand firm in the gospel truth of the Lord. And there's something to be admired, even by the outside world, even by those who reject the biblical ideas of purity and marriage. If we hold to them and, and remain close to Christ, and loving of one another, they might, they might accuse us. But as Jesus said, to, to live such good lives before the non-believers that they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Now, they might, they might accuse, we might get some flack. And in fact, it's probably good if we do sometimes. As long as we're not just being obnoxious on purpose. That doesn't get eternal rewards. But if we're holding to the truth, and we get some flack for that, whatever that flack might look like, it's gonna look much different from us than it will from others, but that's okay. At the end of the day, they might turn to the Lord. And how how do we continue to live holy lives? How do we continue to live lives that please the Lord? And how do we resist? The, the cultural tide of immorality that's, that's so, so prevalent. And so, it seems to be getting worse all the time. How do we stay on the narrow path? Here's a great scripture. We looked at this earlier in length. Today, we'll look at it briefly. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Now, specifically, Paul, Paul mentions about... Standing strong against idolatry, against putting the Lord to the test, against murmuring, against sexual immorality. This really could be for any sin. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 12 and 13 say, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul wrote this to a culture that was plagued with immorality, plagued with idolatry. Such, such, a, such, a, such an infamous city was Corinth. And this is true for us too. This promise to them is just as true for us. No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There's that divine grid that temptation goes through. He'll not let us be tempted. There's always a way out. None of us, well, we sin because we're imperfect. That's true. But there's always a way out. God never puts us in a, in a situation where we have no choice but simply to sin because of our environment, the world around us. And that's encouraging news for, for a dark world. That's encouraging news indeed. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. We go on. Another point. Another, another big point Paul makes, honor others, honoring others trumps personal liberty. Honoring others trumps personal liberty. This is another area that we need to stand firm in the faith. We live in a me first society, don't we? The word I and me and my, are, they're all over the place. They're on products. They're in lifestyles. And, and, and we live in this world that it's it's so normal to to broadcast yourself and the many means you have of doing it. It's so normal to advertise self, to put others before itself it is countercultural. Mm-hmm. It's countercultural indeed. And here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eight, one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. As we journey together in Christ, some of us become more aware of our boundaries. Some of us don't need to have as many rules that is extra biblical rules in our lives as we grow in Christ because we we realize what scripture says more we don't have to have as many ba- as many rules because maybe we understand what the scripture actually says maybe we're not as as given to certain sins or maybe we're just different people than others we look around here paul says to the corinthians well while some Corinthians were going ahead and, and eating certain food that had, had a negative spiritual origin, supposedly, to it, in such a way that could lead others astray, he's saying to them, look, guys, don't, don't analyze so much whether you have the freedom to eat this food or not. Don't think so much about that. Think more about how it influences your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the application for today. What, whatever freedoms that we have, whatever liberty we have, we're to always, rather than thinking so much about what we're free to do, taking an easy, an easy example that, that people disagree on all the time, of course, but an easy example like maybe um, one's use of alcohol, or maybe watching a certain movie versus another movie, whatever it might be, we are to... Not think so much, oh, I can do that, or whatever it might be. But our heart should be, how does this influence my brother or sister in Christ? And a me-centered generation, the point that we should be falling on is, how can I possibly build up my brothers and sisters? Can I give up a liberty that I have? Maybe even just temporarily, so that my brother or sister in Christ does not stumble. Somebody I was listening to Give a message on something totally different, but a similar point brought up this. Some people have what they call personal legalisms. Personal legalisms. So legalism is basically when you take certain rules that are not prescribed in the Bible, and you not only live by those rules yourself, but you also try to impose them on other people. You legalism. You must sit in this pew. This is where you sit every Sunday. I know we don't have pews here, but you know what I mean. Churches where there's, oh, that's your pew right there. You sit in a different pew. Oh, don't, you're gonna mess everything up. Hey, if someone wants to sit in the same pew every day, (laughs) let them, sure, but don't impose that on others. And, and we, have, we have this to take with our, ourselves, too, personal legalisms. Sometimes we have, we have extra rules that we live by, and those aren't bad. Extra rules that are outside the Bible that just help us. Some of us have, we all have, weaknesses in different areas. And sometimes we need, we, as individuals, we need to make up certain rules to obey, and obey them ourselves, because it keeps us out of trouble. And this is probably true for all of us. Here's a very simple one for me. I have to read the Bible in the morning. I mean, I can read it in the afternoon and night too, if I want, but I have to read it in the morning. But Craig, where in scripture does it say it has to be in the morning? Nowhere. But that's a personal legalism to me that I choose to live by, because I have a weakness known as busyness and busy finds me, whether I go looking for it or not, I know that if I don't get into the Word and spend time in prayer early in the morning, this is what I will do. And, and I've been like this for years, and I don't know if I will change the side of heaven. So I hold to this personal legalism, and it's very helpful for me. I say, early in the morning, before I go anywhere, I'm going to spend time with the Lord in prayer and the reading in His Word. Because if I don't, what I will do is I will say, Huh, I have the whole day. I can spend time in the Word anytime. And then I get a phone call. Or then I go off and do this, which turns into that. And before you know it, I'm back at 11 o'clock at night, and I'm tired, and I skip it. I have a personal legalism. The Word must come in the morning. But here's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 8. Don't take your personal legalism and put it on other people. Don't say because I have to do this, that means you have to do it too. We all hold to the word of God, that's the goal. But for the extra stuff outside of the word of God, we we shouldn't put that on other people. Likewise, if other people have extra stuff that's not in the Word of God, we shouldn't, we shouldn't look down on them for being unspiritual for having that. Understand them. Encourage them along in it. Okay. Okay, you can't. You can't eat strawberries on a Thursday? I don't understand that. But apparently that reminds you of some sin you committed 17 years ago. And I respect that. I respect that. I won't call you a religious strange fellow, (laughs) even though I might think you are one. I won't call you that. I will just encourage you in the Lord and abstain from the supermarket on Thursdays when I'm with you. (laughs) <laughs> honoring others trumps personal liberty if, if as a remnant church in a me centered society as a church that strives to cling to the word of God of truth in a me centered society let us always be looking out for others looking out for others indeed and finally Paul makes other points spiritual gifts are for the building up of Christ's body, not personal display. We'll take fewer ta- a little less time on these last two because they were more recent sermons. But spiritual gifts are for the building up of Christ's body, not for personal display. They're wonderful gifts, they're given by God, and as Jesus was no longer physically with his disciples, he told them to wait in Jerusalem till Pentecost for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Since that wonderful time, the Holy Spirit is available to indwell all believers and He gives us spiritual gifts. And what do we do with these? We use them to build one another up. We use them to to fan the flame of one another, build each other up. And in a godly church and a me-centered generation, let us not use our gifts to draw attention to self, but rather to strengthen one another, to help one another, build each other up. And finally, in closing, the resurrection is essential to all of our faith. The resurrection essential to all of our faith, as, as some have erred by looking at some theology like the death and resurrection of Christ as, oh, that's, that's a nice idea, but the point really is just be nice to your neighbor. Where's the power come from? It comes from the resurrection. Yes, be nice to your neighbor. Absolutely. That's, that's huge. Oh, that's one of the two commandments that all the law and prophets hinge upon. but where do we get that power? The power, same power that's available that raised Jesus from the dead. And that power is available to us in Christ and, and for living out the Christian life. How are we to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, that is to be courageous, to be, to be bold in what the Lord's called us to do, to be strong? and to let all that we do be done in love. How do we do that? From the power of the resurrection. And Why is that important? Because Christ took our sins onto Him. He died, we were destined to death, but He died, tasted it for us, and was raised so that we too can be raised in Christ, imperishable. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, Let all that you do be done in love. And that's Paul's closing admonition, amongst other things. But that's what we will take today as Paul's closing admonition to the Corinthians and his, and ultimately the Lord's, to us as well. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for... Uh, Those who have gone before us, who can be wonderful examples, and those who have gone before us, who have made obvious failures that you have been so kind as to record in your word that we can learn from. We ask that you'll help us, help us to look at what has happened in the past with other believers, help us to gleam the, the excellent ways from their lives, and help us to learn from their errors, too their mistakes, their shortcomings, their sins. And help us, help us to always be, stand firm in the faith, be watchful, act like men as in courageous people, following You, carrying out Your will, and to do everything in love. Help us to, help us to live like this individually, and we pray that this would characterize our church more and more as time goes on. We now commit the time of fellowship unto You, Lord. Let it be rich and full of love.